and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Jaws, The Revenge. La Revancha. That's revenge, right? Kind of. It's... No, no. No, Alex. It's okay. La Venganza. But La Revancha would be more like the... You know, like if we're playing... Uh, we're playing Street Fighter and mm-hmm. I beat you. And then you're like, no, let's let's go again. Oh, it's like a rematch. Yeah, rematch. There you go. Okay. I once... Uh, there was a wrestling match uh, that was... Had a... a uh, Mexican performer in it, and it was billed as La Revancha, and I just assumed due to the stakes that was revenge. So, uh, <laughs> the rematch. In many ways, though, this is the not the first or second; it's the third rematch, I guess, uh, because well, we have between jo- us and and the shark. It's the second one. So, oh, so it is La Revancha for us yeah, and Jaws. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I planned it that way, listeners. So there you go. <laughs> Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the Bahamas. This fucking shark travels across the the continent and is like, hey, we're doing this again. He, Look at me. He has like a bandana on and pulls out a switchblade. It's like, I- I'm here for you. <laughs> I will not be ignored. Years and years after our original Jaws episode, we're back for Jaws the Revenge, which, as I mentioned in the teaser for this, has just an absolutely fantastic poster. And Did they peek on the poster, Alex? Is that uh, going to be the <laughs> the real talk? Between the poster and the opening credits, I think they peaked early. <laughs> it was one of the most expensive movies of 1987, so at least we have something good to say about it right off the bat. It has Michael Caine. It does have Michael Caine. Like, and- it really has Michael Caine, because I, I thought that maybe one of those movies where they boast the appearance of, you know, five minutes of screen time from a known actor. Yeah. They put him all over the poster and the, the marketing materials. But no, this is, Michael Caine is one of the main characters. Yeah, he's in there. He's he's rocking it. He's flying a little prop plane. It's quite good. He's um, really flying it. It's not green screen. <laughs> this is practical. Yes. I mean, there is a lot of practical effects in this. And uh, yeah, Michael Caine. Part of that $30 million budget was a million dollars of uh, flying lessons for Michael Caine. <laughs> Sadly, though, uh, it Jaws the Revenge, just spoiler alert for those of y'all tuning in, didn't make it to the best picture round. It was not the last Emperor broadcast news, Fatal Attraction, Hope and Glory, nor was it Moonstruck. But we are here today to bring you the positive merit of Jaws the Revenge. 
And what is revenge in Spanish, just so I have that straight for the future? Venganza. Venganza. Love it. Hello, I am Alex, the guy helping me out with rudimentary Spanish is Julio. We are the contrarians. We are here once again to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Welcome. Why we're doing this movie of all movies, we'll get to here in just a moment. Let's go ahead and cover what we're here to do, and we'll get right into it. Here on The Contrarians, as I said, our battle cry, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times accompanied with that beautiful IP that lets you know it's certified fresh. And what we'll do with movies like that is cut them down to size, tell you some of the you know maybe problematic things about it, be it poor direction, questionable acting, bad storytelling choices, bad score, bad soundtrack, just aimless narrative, whatever it takes to to make our point. Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten. And as you could infer, we'll make a case for that film's positive merit, tell you things that maybe critics got wrong, that, that they just swept under the rug to to feed their notion that it was bad, be it cinematography, bold storytelling choices, good direction, good acting, uh, you know, score is something we rely on a lot of times. Whatever we need to do to build our case, we will do. I mean, the score here, it's oh, a yeah. classic. Oh, yes. Is it? <laughs> I heard John Williams put his great-grandkids through college just, <laughs> just with Jaws score. I really thought that who directed this? What was the gentleman's name? Joseph uh, Sargent just called up um, Charlie Bernstein, the guy who did the score for Nightmare on Elm Street. It was just like, hey, what didn't you use and can <laughs> I use it? <laughs> Originally, he had scored the entire movie just with the with the John Williams theme. And they're like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you need some other music in between. <laughs> this movie's already gone 20 million over budget. We can't keep this going, man. Uh, but as you could guess, Jaws, the revenge, being a zero percenter on Rotten Tomatoes is going to get the full white glove contrarian's treatment here. We're going to make this movie sound as though it were the original Jaws from 1975. Is that right? Do you know? Uh, 70, 75 might be correct. Okay. Uh, oddly enough, as, as we referenced at the beginning, we gave the original Jaws the contrarian treatment as well, and we made it sound like Jaws of Revenge back then. So Many, many moons ago, we covered the first Jaws, and that was like the first episode where we actually got like listener feedback, and I, that's the main thing I remember from it. So what I just explained, zero percenter on the old Rotten Tomatoes with it, awful 15% audience score. We're going to talk about this movie, although it was uh, filet mignon. That will comprise the first half of the episode, part one. That's what we call Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing, in this case, the PG-13 rated, despite the copious amounts of blood, Jaws the Revenge. They just need to hang around for part two, the second half. That is correct. Part two of every episode, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel, how we experience a movie regardless of the Rotten Tomatoes score. We just we drop the gimmick, we, we open up and tell you our real feelings. Uh, in this case, Alex and I had never seen Jaws the Revenge before, even though I think we're both pretty familiar with its uh, infamous reputation. Uh, so 
I don't know. I don't know how Alex feels. I, I know that he's a big fan of uh, practical effects. He has far more tolerance for for schlock than I do. <laughs> so <laughs> it's looking good for Jaws of Revenge, at least on the Alex Mattis side. As for me, I don't know. You know, sometimes I, I, I can have fun with this type of movie. Will this be one of those? Well, you have to stick around until Real Talk to find out. That's also where you'll find out how the person that demanded this movie feels. Uh, this is a request slash demand from patron Ben Murray, Filmbusters Ben, a man of very uh, elevated taste when it comes to movies. I don't know what this is, Alex. This does not strike me as a Ben movie. Does it to you? No, that's quite quizzical. I, Julio does a really good job of handling um, our patron requests and kind of organizing the episodes we do with that. So I've uh, tried to come in kind of um, background blind, as we say to some of these, not knowing who picked the movies that we're doing. And I always look forward to Julio's explanation. And yes, that is fairly surprising. I don't know. Ben's always throwing curveballs. Who knows, man? Maybe he just really likes sharks. I don't know. We'll find out because he sent a clip. So we'll play his clip on Real Talk. That's that's something else you have to look forward to. But before that, we have Contrarian's Corner to get through. where Alex and I will talk about this movie the best possible way. We're going to praise it. Are you ready for this, Alex? Bannon. <laughs> Bannon. It's the only appropriate response to have in this situation. Bring it Instantly on, man. Instantly makes, makes everything better as soon as those two chords... <laughs> Right, you just you start sweating, you get excited, you don't know what's gonna happen next, but you know it's gonna be awesome. We're going back to the summer of 1987, July 17th of 1987. I wouldn't even have been two months old at that point. And uh, coming this summer, Jaws the Revenge. This time, it's personal. Julio, zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes, man. So for the second half, when you typically retrieve um, conflicting reviews, did you have to go to Letterboxd for that? I did. I did. Um, But we're going to start with three Rotten Tomatoes quotes. All rotten, because there's a zero percenter. I'm going to start with a top critic, Jason Bailey from Flavorwire, who in August 6, 2017, so this is not from when the movie opened, Alex, uh, says, Jaws the Revenge bears the marks of its rush production, from the seemingly first draft screenplay to its sloppy execution to the slender running time under 90 minutes without credits to the generally cheap look and feel. Uh, why is he listing the runtime as a bad thing? Under 90 minutes, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's like the antithesis of my personal battle cry throughout this uh, journey of the contrary. So, yeah, that's you got the wrong mindset for this, brother. Next, Daniel Barnes from Dare Daniel says, located a million light leagues away from the elegant terror of Spielberg's 1975 classic, this fourth entry turns the shark into a standard issue 1980s slasher villain. And that's a bad thing. Yep. <laughs> a shark slasher. <laughs> Sold. That sounds like a Tubi original. One of the good ones. Speaking of which, I saw your post online. I didn't realize this was on Tubi. I rented it on uh, YouTube. You paid for this movie? <laughs> it, was, it was discounted at $349. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, the transfer was phenomenal. And that's 
already bleeding into a bit of real talk here. This is a, a good looking movie, so I wasn't too uh, remorseful for it. Yeah, at least you didn't have uh, commercials undercutting the tension in between shark attacks. <laughs> so, uh, all right, we're going to close with another top critic, Jay Boyer from the Orlando Sentinel, who says, a lot of the time, the people in this picture just stand around looking very sad, as if remembering happier days. Watching this sorry film, you know how they must feel. That's from April 30th, 2014. Uh, I think Jay Boyer missed the point that this is a movie about grief. This movie opens with one of the main characters from the first movie dying horribly. Of course, his family is going to stand around looking sad for the rest of the movie. The hell did he want? I don't know. Roy Scheider back or some shit. Yeah, he's a he's a Scheider truther. Like It's not <laughs> a real Jaws movie if Roy Scheider is not in it. It killed your father. Dad died from a heart attack. He died from fear. The fear of it killed him. Mom, 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 mom. All right, well, let's get into it. And by that, I mean we open with one of those classic universal signatures. and It just filled me with such warmth and happiness. And this opening credits, man. So um, you can go back in our archive a little ways and find Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. And while the opening credits of that are kind of static shots of nightlife in New York City, set to... The darkest side of the night. <laughs> it's coming back to me. <laughs> what that transitions to is something that looks exactly like the opening of this movie. And this came out a year before Jason Takes Manhattan. And the opening of that is when he comes out of the water and stabs those two teens in that boat that's just kind of floating aimlessly. But it looks a lot like this, and that was immediately what I thought of, was like, did they just steal the shit from Jason Takes Manhattan? But then I looked it up, and I was like, oh, no. (laughs) The other way around. Kane Hodder and company were like, hey, y'all seen that new Jaws movie? There's fire to that smoke right there, brother. Uh, It's a shame that you didn't watch it in Tubi, Alex, not just because you had to pay for it, but also because it gets in the way of what was going to be my opening salvo here. Tubi, uh, I'm pretty sure YouTube doesn't do this, but Tubi gives you a button, an option that says skip intro during the opening credits, which is amazing. Insane. Yeah, I, that this is where we are. And while I normally would begrudge the idea that this the streaming service wants me to skip the opening credits of a movie, this is not a TV show, but a movie, I, I think it kind of works in the sense that Jaws of Revenge would appreciate that, that they give you the option to just cut straight to the action, which is what this movie does a lot of time. Why the uh, hell would I want to do that? I got to prepare myself for what's about to follow. And in this case, it's Jaws is a creature that is way more intelligent than we ever could have thought. He's not just a big fucking shark. He's got a big brain in that body, too, man. <laughs> it's this. What is it? The, the genealogy, like the the connection between because this is the fourth jaws movie and unless i'm mistaken i think the shark dies at the end of every jaws movie so this is not the same shark or maybe it is i don't know i think (laughs) it's supposed to be yeah so it just puts itself together and then gets back on the hunt well i haven't seen the second or the third one how does he die at the he how does jaws die at the end of um the gender neutral shark how does he die (laughs) it's pat it's jaws (laughs) <laughs> oh, and before I forget, uh, Friday the 13th fans are screaming at me. Uh, 
Manhattan was 89. I forgot that between Jason Lives and New Blood, they took a year off because one through six is 80, 81, 82. It was every year, but then they took a year off. There was uh, not one in 87. Just to distance themselves from Jaws of Revenge so people wouldn't make that connection right away. Yeah, absolutely. Give himself a little uh, a runway, some breathing room. So they're like, oh, people will forget by then. Statue limitations up. So wh- seriously, I don't remember the end of the first draws. He stabs him and they shoot him with like that. Uh, okay, they they literally replay the ending of <laughs> the first draws in this movie. Chief Brody shoots the oxygen tank, so it makes him blow up. Like the the shark has the oxygen tank in its mouth, and then. Brody shoots at it and blows him up. That's and right. Then, but they blow him up again in this one. Sorry, spoilers, but uh, well, I'm pretty sure he he blows up in the third one. And I probably brought this up when we did our, our original Jaws episode. Uh, I saw number three in theaters, uh, and that movie. By God, I know. <laughs> what were my parents thinking? Uh, but that movie takes place in Sea World and. It was 3D, but we didn't watch it in 3D. But I remember thinking that that looked like a 3D shot when the, the shark blows up at the end and the, the teeth of the shark just come at the screen. Fantastic. So that's, you know, that's two sharks so far in the past blowing up. And then I think the the second one, it's electrocuted. It, uh, like the shark is coming at Brody and Brody's holding on to some like electric cables and the shark bites the cables and electrocutes itself. But this is supposed to be the same shark because our main character in this Ellen Brody, Lorraine Gary is convinced that it's he he's come or it it's coming for me. And let's not tantalize the audience any further. The movie starts with Martin Brody, Roy Scheider's son getting eaten by jaws. And you know, she's it's out there. It's coming for me. So I guess this is supposed to be the original, the one and only. So that makes the the connection to Friday the 13th, even more noticeable. (laughs) Right? Oh yes. Well, by the end of this movie, he is Jason. Like he, <laughs> he's hunting folk. The one, he, you know, we get the one guy who we think he killed, but he just all that he was horribly mangled. He didn't die all the way, and so um, he didn't actually die. I should say that's right. But the '80s were the golden era of the slasher film. So what's the problem? You've opened my eyes now to this entire world of possibilities with this being the same shark because I was I was thinking much smaller, Alex. I just assumed that the first shark had descendants and that basically every Jaws movie was about the next shark in the line, not the same shark. So this has taken on such supernatural tones. Like I thought that it was just this shark that had special powers, but no, if it's the same shark regenerating piecing itself back together. That, that explains the scars. Every time you get a close-up of the shark here, it looks like like jigsaw, like just like a puzzle puzzle pieces put together and making up a shark. So that's even more exciting now. This is supernatural from the beginning. It's um, It was a bit much for people to conceptualize at the time, I do understand. Uh, all right, plot. Let's get into this shit, man. <laughs> On Amity Island, Martin Brody, famous for his deeds as the police chief, has died of a heart attack. That's Roy Scheider. Uh, Martin's widow, Ellen, still lives in Amity, close to her younger son, Sean, and his fiance Tiffany. Sean works as a police deputy, and he's a bit of an idiot, but, you know, that's, I think, uh, adds some charm to him. And when he is dispatched to clear a log from a buoy a few days before Christmas, a great white shark appears and tears his arm off. He screams for help. 
but the singing on land drowns out his cries. The shark sinks his boat and drags him underwater to his death. Martin's older son, Michael, his wife, Carla, and their five-year-old daughter, Thea, come to Amity for the funeral. Michael works in the Bahamas as a marine biologist, and on his arrival, Ellen demands he stop his work. Having just received his first grant, Michael is reluctant. Thea convinces Ellen to return to the Bahamas with them. So, real quick, did not realize this was a Christmas movie. Yep. A very odd one, a unique one, I should say, to add to the possible rotation, but... Who's to I mean, say? It, really, it abandons the Christmas theme halfway through because this movie will always keep you guessing. But well, def- there's still a Christmas tree in the background towards the end, so <laughs> I, I did slow your roll there, Julio. And Michael Caine's plane as they're taking off. Merry Christmas, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> so when the uh, this one comes in the rotation right after Falling for Christmas, which is almost what happened on our main feed. <laughs> yes, but before the 2004 remake of Black Christmas. Is that 04? With uh, Lacey Chaubert. Yep. Yeah, the dude gets eaten. That's one of my notes. And oh, okay. he loses his arm first, which was memorable. <laughs> I didn't expect that from the beginning. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't expect this to happen because I remember that the first Jaws opens with just some sort of brutal shark attack. And it would just stand to reason that this would be the same. I, I guess it's the, the fact that one, this guy loses his arm. It's not a single, like one hit kill. It's like first he rips his Sean's arm off. And then there's a solid few minutes, a little solid five minutes of Sean just screaming for help while the shark just circles him. And then the shark destroys him, uh, destroys everything around him and eats him. And As you do. Yeah. I did pick up, I may not picked up on the fact that this was a zombie shark, but I did pick up on the fact that this was a super smart shark that set up this trap, right? Like it was just waiting for him to show up. Like it put the the log, the whatever it is that he went to clear out of the, the water and then just sat there and waited. Did you get that? I, I'm, I, I'm kind of surprised that I did because I, you know, this is before they reveal everything else that's going on. But He's a hyper intelligent amphibious creature, man. Yeah, underestimate sharks as your own peril. <laughs> These things. I thought you'd want them. Did you did you catch that he was Chief Rody's son from the beginning? Not immediately. But then when I figured out Lorraine Gary was, you know, reprising her role from the OG Jaws, and then when they had that, you know, the headshot of Roy Scheider as the <laughs> the sheriff, I was like, ah, okay. That's a problem when uh, when you decide you're not going to use CGI on your movie, then you can't digitally erase the signature, like the autograph on that headshot of Roy Scheider. Now, when you're watching an <laughs> HD and you pause, you're like, oh, shit. It says, like, to Frank, your friend. <laughs> okay, but did, did you recognize her as an actress? I guess that, that was going to be my question because I... I had to go and look on IMDb. I'm like, did they get the same actress to come back and play the character of uh, Chief Brody's wife all these years later? And they did. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. that's that's a big get. That kind of adds legitimacy to your project. It oh, doesn't yeah. really feel like it's a, a, you know, like you're, what do you like to call them, Alex? A soulless cash grab? It's like, no, they, they brought one of the one of the legacy characters. They, yeah, they at least put a little bit of effort into it. 
But business really picks up when Michael, we mentioned her, her son, her living son, enters the fray. Lance Guest is this gentleman's name. And when he hit the screen, I was like, oh, that guy. <laughs> and then I looked up his filmography and I was like, I don't know who this guy is. And I realized it's because he looks like the love child of Jason Patrick and Thomas Everett Scott. Like if they just ran full force into each other and their heads melded together, this is the guy we would get. We would get Lance Guest. I agree. Even though my note just went to Kirk Cameron. I'm like, oh, this is Kirk Cameron if he didn't do religious movies. If Dude, he was he, just There's some of these looks and like angles he's caught where I'm like, it's Spartacus. It's Thomas Everett <laughs> Scott here. Even though he was probably not even born at that time. <laughs> now, he is credited as playing Jimmy in Halloween 2, which I recognize that role. But yeah, he looks different. The beard really. Jimmy's the guy, I think. Michael drains that woman's blood and he runs into the room and slips and falls. I think he's one of the guys that tries to save Laurie at the end, but he's just just not capable. Well, in this one, he's lost his father and his younger brother, so Mm -hmm. he's a little rougher around the edges. When they go to the Bahamas, the pilot of their small plane, Hoagie, takes interest in Ellen when he flies them back, wanting to take her mind off of recent losses and finding herself attracted she begins spending time with him. Michael introduces his mother to his colleague, Jake, and his wife, Louisa. They spend Christmas and New Year's together. So, Hoagie, it's Alfred, man. Michael Caine's here. Michael Caine, pre-Nolan. This is when he was still having fun. He wasn't just typecast as, as the wise British guy in a Christopher Nolan movie. This is him just chilling in the Bahamas, hitting on anything that moves. We don't really know what he does for work or where he gets his money, but he's well off, you can tell. It's a, it's a big plot point. The, the, the question arises every 10, 15 minutes. What does Michael Caine do for a living? Dude, Larry uh, David, you know, was watching this in a theater while he was, you know, making the preliminary rounds on his uh, script for a new television show called Seinfeld. And he had this <laughs> character named Kramer, and he just didn't know how he was going to fashion him. And he watched this, and he was like, my God. That's my Larry David impression. Uh <laughs> Hoagie! That's it! So yeah, Ellen's in bad shape. We get the funeral. Uh, we get the flashbacks to you know, all she's lost because of this goddamn zombie shark. Had you seen sepia flashbacks before in a movie? <laughs> I don't know, man. This is a long ways before Instagram filters, so this had to be mind-blowing shit at the time. It's a, I, I thought it was pretty clever just to make sure we understood that that was not really Roy Scheider in the movie. This is <laughs> somewhere else. And it's not even, it's 12-year-old footage, and it's not like some unearthed <laughs> lost film. Like, uh, what was what was the first movie to win the Academy Award? Was it Wings? Yes. It's like, it, yeah. <laughs> if you're putting that in there, like Freaks or something, then maybe, yeah, it's beat up. But it's the same studio, right? Wasn't Jaws from Universal? Fuck's sake. It's called Artistic Flourish, Alex. I don't know why they left a cigarette burn on one of those flashbacks, but I like it. It just makes it feel more uh, sophisticated. Very. We get the tremendously realistic uh, portrayal of little kids not understanding decorum. When Thea (laughs) says, uh, you know, Uncle Sean's dead. Is he coming back? It's like, Jesus, man. It's not out of the question at this point. Once you've established that, that the shark 
it's carrying a grudge against his family and that it's potentially the same shark from the first movie that Sean might come back from the dead. If the shark can, why can't uh, one of the Brodies? Yeah, I, I didn't know where this movie was going to go ever. That kid was just voicing my my questions. It's like, when is he coming back? Is Roy Scheider coming back? I don't know. Um, it's it's weird. This is and weird in a good way. I've always said, whenever the the, the subject of uh, death in a movie and you know, the consequences of death comes up, and people start criticizing the way characters act, I always go to like, listen, grief affects people differently. Everybody mm. reacts different ways. Some people just shut down. Some people get really busy. Some people go to the Bahamas and start flirting with Michael Caine. Like, you really don't know how you're going to react until it happens to you. I actually think that grief in movies, it's, it's really, um, if you pull it off, it's great. Because it allows you to justify so many things that your characters would normally not do, right? So you, you have Ellen here who already seems to be having trouble dealing with the loss of her husband because apparently Chief Brody had a heart attack, but she's convinced that the heart attack is the shark's fault. So she's already in a tough place, and then she loses her young son to a shark. And everything she does in this movie, if you didn't have that cloud of grief hovering over her, would be kind of nonsensical. But because she's going through so much shit, you buy it, or at least I did. I'm like, yeah, of course she's... She's just stowing the line of a nervous breakdown. So it makes sense that she will just go dance with Michael Caine, I don't know, five days after her son was eaten by a shark. Because it's things stop making sense when you're grieving. It, this is an entire family. You know, it's her, her oldest son and, by extension, her son's family. So anytime that somebody acted in a way that would maybe prompt someone to go like, oh, I don't know, I wouldn't act that way. The the answer is, well, yeah, but they just had a major loss in their family. So they're they're shaken. They're not acting. They're not being themselves. So did you feel like you had to justify the movie as it was going? Or did you kind of like vibe the same way that I did, where it was like, well, they're grieving. Of course, they're acting irrationally. Yeah, I've never personally been in the situation. So I was just like, slay, queen. Do what you need to do. Now, Michael Caine, on the other hand, I mean, and I appreciate that this is absolutely just, uh, reckless pilot. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> letting the kid fly the plane, maybe a little too much, <laughs> going too hard for that uh, five star Yelp review. <laughs> it was like, you know, the first time you operate a plane playing Grand Theft Auto of he, he takes it and he's like, and this goes down and, he, <laughs> and this goes up. <laughs> he's having a good time, though. We'll talk about Michael Caine's thoughts on this movie when we get to real talk. So hold steady on that thought. And, uh, you know, also, no one's ever been in the situation of the same shark killed, you know, your husband and your son and is coming after you. So you, I don't know how you'd react in that. Maybe I would want to dance with Michael Caine because <laughs> the shark's not going to stop. You realize how, how little time we all have left. Life is fleeting. You don't dance with him today, you might not be around tomorrow. Like sand through an hourglass. <laughs> what do you want? Um, whatever we had last time. Two Bahama Mamas, please. Uh, because Michael's wife has to have something to do. She's an artist working on like a, a piece that's going to be donated and opened on a, a beach in the Bahamas there. As we mentioned, Ellen wants her son to cease his work as she assures him it's coming for us. And so, you know, doesn't want him to be in the water to which he 
logically retorts, well, we're in, you know, warm water ocean territory. They, they don't like that. They're not going to come here. Ha <laughs> ha! Fool! Conventional wisdom has nothing on a shark with a vendetta. Now, this is also something that this, <laughs> grief or no grief, this is something that happens in life and I, I found relatable. I like that this movie is about Ellen Brody worrying about her son's how her son's work, her son's job puts him in danger, and Michael Brody worrying about how his mom's newly single status puts her in danger around Michael Caine. Well, I think what she didn't understand was that her son was working on the set of Titanic and Avatar uh, because we see the little pod that he uses for work. It looks like just like the fucking vessels James Cameron used to change the film industry. Not once, not twice, but thrice. So this guy was way ahead of the curve, and I think if she understood that, um, all he had to say was like, Mom, Jim's signing my paychecks. <laughs> She'd be like, oh, shit, I'm sorry. Jim? Terminator Jim? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Got an early peek at that Terminator 2 script. My God, that's going to be a blockbuster. <laughs> I could see James Cameron fighting Jaws. You know, Jaws, of course, being... Uh, superhero movies and reluctant moviegoers. <laughs> and Cameron, Cameron just dresses like Chief Brody. <laughs> he, he he's dressed just like Arnold in the Terminator, but, but he's underwater, like with a leather jacket and the glasses on. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Jake, Michael's uh, partner, in this venture where they're going underwater and. Mario Van Peebles. Uh, no, Alex, that was Adrian Brody. Oh, wow. Come on, come on, come on. We got the whole crew now, you know? I'm going to give a big up, enough respect, I dance our players, you know? And I shun John! I'm very psyched I've turned that into, like, canon for, and also <laughs> something that you can now reference uh peebles was born in mexico city mexico the son of writer director actor and musician melvin van peoples and maria marks now melvin is also in the movie right because i saw his name on the credits yes he was the mayor uh, the guy who gave the speech on the beach okay um an interesting character especially when you consider like jaws was some of the original white people shit that you know we talked about here on the podcast so I was relieved to at least see in some ways that um, these movies expanded in diversity. It took four movies, but we finally got a major black character that made it all the way to the end. And bucked the trend of, you know, the black guy always dies in these movies. You think he does. Spoiler alert about the ending. But he survives. Jaws fucks his dude up, but he's tough as nails and just withstands it. And then he also has like the quippy one-liner about it like you know we're just studying snails or whatever he says there at the end it's fantastic (laughs) he's a real hero in this movie every time that you think that things are getting a little too morose or a little too just a little too heavy here comes van peoples mario with a with a quip you're gonna bust somebody's chops over mourning the death of his brother like hey michael lighten up it's been a few days already like airplane spins him when he's sad about his brother getting brutally murdered by a shark picks him up like he's fucking bob Backlund, and he's just like ah what are you doing gives him a wedgie gives him a look like a noogie like uh he's he's, he's suddenly in my mind from boss he's like you fucking cocksucker you know just giving him like a a noogie 
<laughs> oh, you sad about your fucking brother dying? <laughs> Go to Duncan and get a Lodge regular. <laughs> because we're in a much more warm climate here, we're reminded it's Christmas Eve because it obviously doesn't look like Christmas. Like I said, you got some lights and decorations in the background. I appreciate the Ellen wants her son to change his work, build a sandcastle with her granddaughter, Thea. And it is a hell of a sandcastle. I took note of that just because it was so visually impressive. And Julio, it was a fucking real sandcastle. No green screen. So sorry that, you know, your WandaVision couldn't live <laughs> up to the the work of Jaws the Revenge. The problem with WandaVision was not the CGI. It was the lack of Michael Caine. Because that castle, the reason you're remembering that sandcastle is because Michael Caine shows up and admires the sandcastle. That's what makes it all work. The little girl does have a good line here. I don't remember the context of why she says this, but I have the quote written down. I just remember she tells her grandma, it's not nice to be invasive. That's what my mom says. (laughs) (laughs) It's truly adorable. So Michael Caine shows up, goes for a walk on the beach with Ellen Brody is basically convinces her, you know, let's go somewhere so you can take your mind off all your woes and troubles. All across the ocean, Michael is on his boat doing his own thing, but then he it's like he can sense that his mom is being macked on. And uh, I don't remember if he grabs binoculars or he's just looking like normally, but he can see that the he can sense like like as a guy, sometimes you can sense when there's another guy that's just putting the moves on somebody you care for. <laughs> it's the telekinetic energy that just <laughs> penetrates all of the figures of this movie it's like his uh, the hair on his on his neck just stands so here on this plane ride with michael kane with hoagie and ellen he's telling stories and basically piecing these stories together you know he's the guy with the stories but this is a young christopher nolan figuring out this is the the tangerine story about some men just want to watch the world burn because that's basically <laughs> One time in Bermuda, and he's telling these stories, and this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. This is like the early stages of when he tells Bruce Wayne about how he's going to have to fight the Joker. It's like, oh, all right. <laughs> My note here says telekinetic, but what I meant to write down is um, telepathic, because Ellen can sense Jaws is near. And Michael and his crew discover that Jaws has come, but they don't want to tell anybody. What's their reasoning so they can capture it for study? Yeah, uh, Jake, Adrian Brody, slash Murray Van Pebbles. I think it's Murray Van Pebbles like on screen, but the voice is Adrian Brody. Like they, he dubbed it. He's not happy with the the current work they're doing, studying seashells and whatever. And he wants something bigger that's going to make them more money. And apparently, a shark, a shark in the Bahamas, is definitely that. So, the he he tells him, okay, we're not going to tell anybody. We're going to put a tracker on this guy, and we're going to capture it. And then we can just, and then we can go back to the seashells if you want. And I don't. That part makes sense. The part that doesn't make sense is when he says that he's tired of living in the Bahamas. Because yeah. the, the Bahamas is painted as an amazing place to chill at, uh, even if you have a that killer shark roaming around. Then you get that feeling like I've never been. Have you ever been to the Bahamas? I've not. It looks amazing, right? Like everywhere you go, people are just partying and it's very colorful, very relaxed. The cherry on top is when you actually see Michael Caine dancing in the middle of the street. It starts dancing as he's talking to Ellen. You know what I'm talking about? He's doing like the little bounce. Oh, yeah. There's a, a dance scene with Michael Caine and uh, Ellen Brody. What's her name? 
Lorraine Gary. Older people bopping on the streets. Her son died like literal days ago. Grief, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> you process it different ways. So yeah, as you mentioned, they bait Jaws in. They're just throwing pretty much random animal cuts into the water and just <laughs> there's blood everywhere. <laughs> and the two guys that work with them, we don't really know what their credentials are other than occasionally hitting a one-liner or just saying, yeah, this will work. <laughs> Jaws comes up. They are able to tag them so they can track them and you know, hopefully begin their study. But they, they're sworn to secrecy. They take a blood oath that they won't let anyone know that Jaws is roaming about. What's the worst that could happen? Dude, this shit all looks really good. I know that the shark may leave something to be desired. And as anyone who's ever seen the first Jaws knows, that's the whole thing of you don't really see him until it's important. Here, you you could argue you see a little bit too much of the shark. And that when you do see it, it kind of does look hokey. It did win the Golden Raspberry for worst visual effects. Oh, fuck them. <laughs> like, who has seen, how many of those people voting has actually seen a shark face to face? I think that sharks <laughs> look hokey to begin with in real life. So it, be- <laughs> it beat out the Garbage Pail Kids movie. And this this is not a challenge, but I am shocked that that has not come up from a patron request. And Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Now, that being said, the shark, maybe, leaves something to be desired. But this movie's beautiful. Those shots where they're like, Michael's going around the coral reef, got the electric eel that comes up to him, and the big chase sequence we're about to get to, the overhead shots of the plane. Like some of the interior shots of the plane are you can tell are kind of uh, blue screen or green screen, whatever was the motif at the time. But um, this movie's very aesthetically pleasing. Much and like it, uh, Michael's wife when she's dressed as a welder. <laughs> yes. And you got to believe it probably wasn't too much of a hassle or, um, you know, it, it definitely wasn't didn't make things hard that you were filming in the Bahamas and could go to the beach when you weren't shooting and stuff. So I was kind of envious of the actors in this. It's like you get to make a <laughs> fucking cool slasher movie and you're on the beach chilling with Michael Caine, probably <laughs> doing acid, telling him crazy stories. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Caine just spilling the beans and everything that went behind the scenes on Alfie. So we get the dichotomy of how dudes to talk to each other versus how women talk to each other, which sets up um, the culmination of that is basically the unveiling of her art piece. But Jaws, of course, fucks that up. We get the cute daddy daughter scene that mirrors the scene with um, Roy Scheider and his son in the first Jaws. They kind of mimic each other's actions. I saw you in Thea. You don't know what it did to me. You look just like your father. Do you remember when you guys used to imitate him? We now know this shark is looming, but Michael and the gang are still doing their underwater research, which, again, I don't really know what it is. They have a grant. They keep talking about that. <laughs> and while he's underwater, Jake is on the, the, the walkie-talkie and is doing like the menacing, like, dun-dun-dun. So Jaws, the movie, is canon within Jaws, the revenge. The easy answer is that he doesn't know that he's playing the Jaws theme. He just he's he happens to be playing the Jaws theme, but we don't, you know, because they've never heard it before. 
we do. The audience obviously recognizes it, but we don't know. Michael's just, on the other side of the uh, walkie like, man, that fucking rips. Keep that going, man. <laughs> Holy shit. This is, this where, is the uh, big chase scene, though. Yeah, where Sergeant shows James Cameron how do you do it in 10 go. minutes as opposed to 45 minutes. And he does it practically. He doesn't do any of the Avatar CGI. This is good, though, dude. Jaws shows up and he chases Michael and he breaks the Cameron pod that he's in. And so he gets away. There's a submarine or a boat or some shit. There's a wreckage at the bottom of the ocean. And they, you know, there's a chase scene through that. Finding Nemo ripped this off years later with the shark in that movie. The shark and gets its uh, its shining moment. The the here's Johnny moment. Yes. It just breaks through the wall, but doesn't come all the way. Just the face and the big smile. And then in a pretty cool, like, moment of ingenuity, Michael's like, I'm fucked. I got to get out of here. So he takes off his oxygen tank and just kind of like chops the the seal off of it. So it becomes like a jetpack and propels him up to the surface and he gets over to the ship. It's it's a pretty fun chase scene. My uh, only complaint, Alex, is he doesn't get the bends. You you don't just <laughs> shoot up to the to the top of the, the ocean without consequences. Well, we're dealing with the movie here in which its own franchise exists canonically within it. So I think, you know, we're we're far past that. In this universe, the bends don't exist. More of the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, scraps for the score they have here. And Jaws is <laughs> about. So Michael knows the sharks out here. And he also knows that his wife has the, you know, the dedication, the opening ceremony for her art piece that she made. He misses the dedication. He makes a clear choice to, to stick with the shark, not with his wife. Well, also putting his daughter in, in the immediate line of danger with not telling him the shark was there. So misses the dedication. At said dedication, the daughter, she's a little girl. She's like five, six, seven, something like that. So she's restless. She went, and if I'm a fucking kid. Of course, I want to go to the beach. There's a big banana boat. She wants to go out on it. And the mother's like, okay, you can go. And there's like four kids and one adult. These things rocking and rolling, strutting and strolling, riding along, and then Jaws comes up and just eats the fuck out of the grown up on it. <laughs> All right, this is the moment. This is the 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 Halloween twenty eighteen slash Halloween ends uh, plot twist. We've been told that the shark was targeting the the family, the Brody family. The the poster, the tagline was this time it's personal, and here is where we realize it wasn't because it doesn't go for the little girl. It eats an adult. Like earlier in the movie, Michael was like, oh, yeah, it's coming after me because it went past Jake and it, it only attacked me. And uh, he's like Lori, believing that Michael is going after her. When really the shark is just hungry. Whenever he's hungry, he attacks wherever he attacks. So in this case, they put a buffet for him on the beach. And then he just went and went for the first person that that, that was available. You know, and then, and then I wish the movie had underlined this more because... At that point is when it becomes clear that it's not a revenge tale. It's just like the shark. It might not even be the same shark, Alex. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? Like, and then it attacks Jake. It attacks Michael Caine. They're not Brodies. Why would he attack? Why would the shark attack them if uh, if it's personal? Do you think it's just a, a shark being a shark? <laughs> he just got caught in like a riptide that carried him to a part of the country he was unfamiliar with. He's just he's got to eat, man. He recognized the Brodies and he was just saying hi. <laughs> you know, sharks can't speak. This is how they communicate, by biting. So Jaws is there. Thea fortunately survives. Claire, was that her name? The wife? Carla. 
rightly accosts Michael. It's like, you fucking knew. She should have punched him, but she didn't. And he uses point, a, he uses his mom as an excuse to run away from this argument. Oh, it's great. Because he while this is going on, Ellen hops aboard the boat and she's it's time for a fucking showdown, baby. <laughs> Pistols at dawn, Chaws. She takes off, so <laughs> yeah. Carla doesn't really get any retribution or uh, <laughs> not retribution. What's the word I'm looking for? She doesn't Justice. even get to say her piece. I mean, it, you know, I was talking about the '80s was still the Wild West, and it still is just like women. You know, uh, they be shopping and they get mad about everything. <laughs> so yeah, she's still yelling at him. He's <laughs> he's already running out of the room. It's like, where are you going? And, Jake, come on, let's get out of here. So they take off looking for Ellen. Michael Caine's out there doing God knows what, you know, fishing with dynamite or just doing blow in his little pontoon boat. But <laughs> it cuts to him flying them because he has a fucking plane. And they pull up, they find Ellen, and Jaws is circling the boat that she's on. And it's time for it's the final countdown as Europe would immortally put to vinyl. And it's the the ultimate showdown here between. The remaining Brodies, Michael Caine, Mario Von Peebles, and Jaws. How much did you love the fact that Michael Caine ditched the plane just so they could all be together in that boat? I my note, I legitimately bought that he died because I, you know, we always talk about the insanity of some things actors have in their contracts. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, Michael Caine just told him they couldn't like show him bleeding or dying or something, so he just got eight underwater it's like my kids are gonna watch this <laughs> yeah and so i was like oh man hoagie my note <laughs> says hoagie no <laughs> <laughs> and then when he showed back up you we were like fuck yeah oh yeah I, I fist pumped i was like god bless but then my exhilaration turned to terror when jake gets eaten and what's the plan of how they kill him here uh what's the combination of the power of technology and the power of flashbacks to Joss one because one of the running not even gags running themes is that jake is good with technology and michael isn't mm-hmm. and so he creates a device that's you know he just puts together some of the machinery that he has in the boat and i guess it's a receiver and a transmitter so if they get the shark to eat the receiver then they can use the the transmitter to to give him uh, electrical shocks I got it, I got it. Bring an antenna on this. We got a slave unit that shot the hell out of me. Right, you're learning, partner. Give him electroshock therapy from inside. And in the process of feeding him the receiver, Jake also feeds himself to the shark. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, because he's shocking him and makes him jump out of the water. Like, he's Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Yeah, but that that shot's pretty amazing. Something I really like about this shark versus the shark in the original movie is that this shark feels like a force of nature. I think that because Spielberg was so concerned about not showing the shark in the first movie, it's, uh, you know, it works in a different way. And and I think that especially now that we've seen sharks, the mystery of like, oh, what does the shark look like? It's not as powerful, right? But here, they just have the shark and they just have the shark go through everything. It's like the juggernaut. Like whatever you put in front of that shark, he just destroys it, obliterates it, and keeps going. And so here, when he jumps out of the water, and it, uh, Van Pebbles is hanging from from a, what is that, like from the mast? <laughs> Something that's sticking out of the boat. And mm-hmm. the shark just destroys that, and Van Pebbles falls. Jake falls into his mouth. It's it's pretty impressive. It's, it's one of the most uh, dynamic shots, I think, in the movie. Well, the bow uh, 
is it the bow sprit, I think is what it's called. He breaks in the process. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's basically just, you know, the, it's a much bigger version of the, the beer bottle that you break on the bar and it's jagged and you're like, come on, who wants some? <laughs> so when he lunges out of the water, Ellen, who's piloting the ship at that point, rams it into Jaws. Now, in the original version of the film that was screened in the U.S., the shark bleeds out and dies after being impaled. In the revised ending for international theaters and DVD release, the impaling causes the shark to immediately explode and its corpse sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Footage from the ending of the first film is used to show this. Also in the revised ending, Michael hears Jake calling for help, seriously injured but still alive. Jake died in the original cut. So so wait, the original cut was shown in the US and then everybody else around the world got to see the happy ending? I guess. In the original theatrical version's ending, Ellen rammed the shark with Mike's boat, mortally wounding it. The shark then causes the boat to break apart with its death contortions, forcing the people on the boat to jump off to avoid going down with it. American audience disapproved of this ending. Following this, a different ending was ordered to be shot for foreign distribution in which the shark gets stabbed with the bow and then it inexplicably explodes with Jake (laughs) being found wounded but alive. Universal used this ending on home media releases. American audiences just cheering at the idea that the boat would make a shark explode. Who who they disapproved to was John G. Universal outside of the theater and, you know, it had like the sign on his neck that saying I made Jaws the revenge and people came up and just said, I am very disappointed in that ending. Shame on you. A rumor persists that the reshooting of the ending prevented Michael Caine from collecting his Academy Award for Hannah and her sisters in person. The reshot ending reportedly began filming only five days after the film was released in the United States. The new ending was the version released in other Western countries. The original ending can be seen on cable broadcasts. In his review of the film, Roger Ebert said that he could not believe, quote, that the director, Joseph Sargent, would film the final climactic scene so incompetently that there's not even an establishing shot, so we have to figure out what happened on the basis of empirical evidence. Come on, Roger. How hard is it to figure out that the shark exploded? (laughs) (laughs) But they just recycled shots from the original one. That is unbelievable. That is ingenuity. Yeah, I learned that all, not just myself, but Julio also. We learned that all in real time along with y'all. That's not something we knew coming in. That's tremendous. Doesn't that make you appreciate the movie even more? Uh, It makes me appreciate how movies used to be made way more. Because (laughs) now, like, there's no... No way. It's a literal impossibility at this stage of the game that a movie would make it to theaters with like a disputed ending and then they have to recut it afterwards. You know, there's obviously a reason for that nowadays. Shit gets leaked. People, you know, film it, torn it, bootleg Mm -hmm. it, all that type of stuff. But take me back to a time where this was possible. (laughs) Such an unnecessary loss of money. Well, yeah, but also in a way it was necessary because you had American audiences turning their noses up at this ending that I guess they felt wasn't uh, punishing enough for the shark. So Sergeant and the studio, they're like, okay, all right. So that's what you want? Well, fuck you. (laughs) We're going to blow this shark up. Oh, Michael Caine won an Oscar? I don't care. He's coming here. Tough shit. 
I do like that Jake. I honestly like that Jake lived though because it's kind of it fits with the tone of this movie. Yes, the ridiculousness of him getting just chewed up, but then still being like, "Oh, he got me. I'm okay though." Let me put one last quip out there. Uh, in many it, ways, this was a precursor to The Hangover 3, where a filmmaker in <laughs> a studio, not so much a studio, but a filmmaker was like, all right, fuck you. If that's what you want, I'm just going to give you the most <laughs> milk toast version of it possible. Except that this is the opposite. It's not milk toast. It's just he went all out. This is where also when I you were talking about Jake surviving, that means, unless I'm mistaken, the body count in this movie is only two. Like two people die. In the movie, which is three, three. Who's the third one? Because you have uh, the, Sean at the beginning, and then the the woman that was with Thea at Beach. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were. I I misunderstood what you said. Yes, if Jake dies, there's three. Without Jake, there's just two. Right, two, which seems really low for for a shark movie, right? Yeah, I mean, but you don't think about it when you're watching the movie. You're just enjoying it. Yeah, this was 87, man. So by this point, Leatherface, Freddy, and Jason were putting significant numbers up on the board. So you're right. That's a that's a low body count for something that really is presented like a slasher film. The shark was like, if you can't compete with them, just go the opposite direction. This is not about who kills the most people. It's about who, who presents the most thoughtful movie, the most thoughtful exploration on uh, death and grieving. Well, and also it deserves credit and shocking that I read it was PG-13 because the death scenes are fucking brutal. B.R. Oodle. He rips that dude's arm off and then eats him up. And then we see in painstaking detail that uh, the adult with the kids on the boat just get munched the fuck up for dinner. We used to not cuddle kids, Alex. (laughs) What happened? Big was rated PG, and they said fuck in that movie. <laughs> All right. Well, Jaws has been defeated yet again, and then it's literally a happily ever after ending where all that was really missing. We use Michael Caine's uh, plane to fly him and Ellen off into the sunset when in actuality he should have gotten in the pink Cadillac while all the other school children <laughs> saying we'll always be together. <laughs> and the Cadillac took off and flew away. Does he have a second plane? Because his plane... Julio, a crucial subplot involved Hoagie smuggling drugs onto the island. The scenes were shot, then deleted during post-production because it took away from the main premise involving the shark. It's fully detailed in the novelization of the film. But the idea was to like show that he had... And I mean, it kind of teases that he's got a ton of money that they mm-hmm. don't really know where it comes from. So, yeah, sure. He's got multiple planes, man. Michael Caine, Hoagie is a Grand Theft Auto character, absolutely <laughs> through and through. All right, we we're, we spent between twenty three and thirty million dollars creating one of the most expensive movies of nineteen eighty seven. Racked up multiple Golden Raspberry nominations. We did do over fifty million dollars in the box office, but I think the real question is, how do the contrarians really feel about this movie? And Julio, I think that is as good of any of a segue to real talk. I agree. Let's go to real talk. 